Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And it's been a hell of a week, ladies. It's been a shit-ass week. I uh, I said to my boyfriend last night, I think that as 2018 goes on, the weeks just get worse and worse and longer and longer, and everything's awful. That sounds about right. Yep. Checks out. Yeah. It's uh, been an emotionally exhausting week. I don't know about you guys. Oh, very much the same. I am, yeah, I'm exhausted, to be honest. I just, I just, I don't know. This week was just awful. <laughs> I'm just glad it's over. I know. Do we week. share our highs and lows? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, like family yeah. dinner tables. <laughs> uh, Amy, you were uh, busy all weekend here. That's right. I went to the NDP convention. How was that? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know what? I Convention's a tricky thing. It's, it's you know, it, I've had my comings and goings with the part, like partisan aspect of being a new Democrat. I have been a member of the party for a long time and have gone to a number of conventions. And it always ends up the same. You leave kind of feeling frustrated by the process and by some of the establishment type folks, but you meet a lot of amazing activists and uh, people working across the country further some really awesome social justice causes so in that sense um i made a lot of friends so it was great awesome yeah kind of a family reunion of sorts yeah totally you meet all those awesome people you know from twitter and facebook irl for the first time which is always fun nice it is pretty cool i love that i actually uh have a souvenir from convention that i brought for erica oh it's a button hire black women Woo! (laughs) i love it (laughs) I love it. Okay, this has to go. So my friend Etana made buttons for the convention uh, that say... What's her name? Etana Kane. Etana? Yeah. Shout out Etana. Yeah, Etana is the best. She used to live in Ottawa. She's no longer an Ottawa-based person, but she used to work for the party um, and wanted to highlight the issue of representation and staffing that we have with the NDP. And also she made buttons for me. Lack thereof. Or lack thereof. (laughs) And she made buttons as well for her Time's Up and Me Too. um, Oh, yay. Okay, I'm wearing it just... I w- I'm wearing it for this podcast. It's, a- it's evergreen. You can wear it anytime oh, for I any will. organization. <laughs> I will. She's going to wear it to like all of her panel appearances. Yeah. I think it's. Yeah. 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 Oh, I like Fabulous, it. Right? Okay. So it's actually. And they're, they used uh, they used the buttons as an opportunity to fundraise for um, Young Women Lead, which is an organization that's developing um, sexual harassment um, anti-harassment kits for women in political spaces. They contacted me. I, yeah. I know who you're talking yeah, yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's okay. a great, great group of uh, younger women based in Toronto, and they're doing consultations. Uh, and they're doing one in Ottawa about um, how to develop anti-harassment policies this, I think week. this yeah. week. Yeah, on the 21st at Carleton. Yeah. Oh, it's the 21st, so that's a Wednesday. So. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> I don't know when this podcast comes out. It may be irrelevant at that point, but you should all look them up. <laughs> Um, Erica, you've got a, a, you're on a panel this week. I am, uh, stalking. Ooh, okay. So here's something I could contribute. So last night. <laughs> oh, good. No, that's We're not, counting on you. <laughs> that's not like bad. Okay. So last night, um, 
I, uh, so, <laughs> last night I made my boyfriend watch. She's got to have it. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Let me rephrase. I started watching it, and then he kind of, like, you know, did the white gaze thing. <laughs> so, anyway. Okay, so for those who don't know, about 30 years ago, Spike Lee had this breakout movie called She's Gotta Have It. Um, it pretty much... It was one of those films in like a short period of time that kind of solidified his place in cinematic history, I mm -hmm. suppose you could say. Anyway, Netflix picked it up and he's um, picked him up and he's doing a series based on that. And it's a lot about black feminism mm -hmm. and about stalking and street harassment in the first like two episodes. Yes. Oh, so now I love that storyline. So now I feel like I'm getting prepared for the <laughs> panel that I will be on on the 22nd. Um, and it's about stalking. So it's really cool because um, just right before I get this, this black woman's perspective in like New York City, mm -hmm. which is a walking city. And, you know, where street harassment goes uh, like out, like it's just crazy. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I feel like I'm properly preparing for it from a black woman's perspective. Because I only have a certain amount of perspective. Um, but it's nice to see it, especially on Netflix. Netflix is killing it, eh? Yeah, they're doing yeah. great. Yeah. Because, as you know, funny enough, when I was, I was talking about it with Dude, I said, you know, Netflix is picking up all of these kind of diverse type of shows mm -hmm. yeah. that you will never see on broadcast television. And, you know, he's like, well, yeah, because basically they know that this material is unique and it's going to capture a piece of the market that's already not being served. Mm -hmm. They don't have to produce it in mass quantities. They just have to get subscribers, which is a different model altogether. Anyway, that's an aside. No, it, it is really fascinating. I was listening to an interview with Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin, and she was saying that a lot of executives at major um, uh, like networks had told her, well, we don't need to go after Latino audiences because they already like participate in content. They're not asking for anything more. They buy the mainstream stuff. So we're not we're financially incentivized to go after them. But frankly, I think that's why networks are becoming obsolete because mm -hmm. they're not finding way, like they're not, you know, reaching people where they're at and there's a lot more that they could tap into as opposed to this passive consumption that we've traditionally been doing. Exactly. And we just consume differently now. Yeah. And yeah. we consume according to our... Uh, nobody's one thing or another. That's right. We all have a cross-section of taste. And, um, again, and the newspapers are the same way. Mm -hmm. Or at least Canadian media is the same way, where they're like, well, you all, you all consume the mainstream content. And we're like, mm, we now have a choice not to consume because you're not the only one out there. Right. Yeah. We're consuming content from other places that speak to us more, which is why you're losing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there, there's my <laughs> contribution. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to your, or to hearing about uh, how the panel goes, especially with like being a black woman and how it, that's just a completely different experience. Than it is. Yeah, it totally is. Awesome. So let's get into it.
Wait, what? We just gotta let you guys know, we do have some bonus pods coming up for our Patreon subscribers. So we're we've got um, an advance. We'll have advanced copies for um, patrons coming up for a bonus pod for Black History Month, and then uh, we're gonna have some exclusive content for subscribers. So head over to Patreon.com/slash/BadAndBitchy and become a patron, and you can get advanced access and exclusive access to bonus content. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> now we Erica, can. we just did it yesterday. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. This Week in Feminism. Well, I guess this one's a little bit older, but I think it's something that we are, is worth talking about. Um, Angus Reid conducted an in-depth survey of Canadians in the workplace and their attitudes towards the Me Too movement and workplace sexual harassment. The survey was of over 2,000 adult Canadians taken in January, and it is the most comprehensive look at Canadian attitudes towards Me Too since the movement took off in light of the allegations of sexual misconduct leveled against Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein in October. Um, The survey shows a pretty stark divide between um, millennials and Gen X baby boomers and between men and women. Mm. Um, 52% of the women surveyed have experienced workplace sexual harassment, Nearly 9 out of 10 women said that they've had to take steps to avoid sexual advances in the workplace. Roughly a quarter of women across all age groups, from 18 to 55 and over, said that they resent having to use these strategies and think that it should be, shouldn't be up to them to avoid being harassed. Um, 90% of respondents said women are right to come forward with their past experiences of sexual abuse but only 58% said that the Me Too movement will significantly improve relations between men and women. Uh, Men across all age groups are following the headlines of Me Too at a higher rate than women, Hmm. with 68% of men aged 18 to 34 saying that they keep an eye on it versus 55% of women in the same age group. Um, Young men are split almost evenly on whether any new rules about conduct post Me Too are, quote, killing the human element in the workplace, uh, with 45% of millennial men agreeing that they are, while only 28% of women in their age range agreed with that statement. Um, What else? 58% of young men agreed with the statement, quote, some people have definitely behaved like jerks, but they shouldn't lose their jobs or their reputations for it. And finally, younger generations were also the most skeptical that Me Too would lead to any lasting change. 69% of millennial women said that the movement needs more time to make a difference, while 47% of older men think that it has made a major placement, permanent shift in workplace dynamics. And just one more thing. Um, Where is it? Um, Men between the ages of 18 and 34 are far less likely to think that the behavior women want to report is an actual problem. And they are also twice as likely as the rest of the population to say it's okay to express sexual interest in a coworker, stand in a coworker's personal space, tell off-color jokes, or give a colleague an uninvited shoulder rub. Well, so they think that's appropriate in the workplace? Apparently. Alrighty. <laughs> I see we have just a different <laughs> so, and, and I think that's why the millennial women's sense that Me Too 
uh, needs a lot more grounding. Like, that's where that comes from. Like, and I think we know that we're talking past each other a little bit. My general opinion about workplace harassment is, I mean, is what is the definition of harassment is is if you feel uncomfortable. That's right. And I am generally comfortable and create relationships with like men in the workplace that are like very friendly and very cordial. Mm -hmm. Um, And depending on the individual would be okay. Like if I am willing to have lunch with them regularly, go for a drink with them after work, we've probably developed a relationship where I would be okay with them just being like, Oh, you're, you're having a rough day. Like here's a quick little, like you can do it kind of shoulder rub. Um, But like someone who is your boss or who you just sit in the cubicle next to you seems very bizarre. But, I mean, to be clear, even if you are friends with someone and the one day they decided to give you a shoulder rub and you weren't into it that day, that and you took it, the you know, and you took, yeah. you took offense to it, then that's also potentially sure. a form of harassment. The thing is, you know, Me Too is not about saying like punishing people for this conduct. And I think that's sort of where the conversation's gotten away from us. It's about identifying, educating people, first of, all about, first of all, about what meets the definition of harassment, mm-hmm. what kinds of behavior, so that they can identify that, not just in themselves, but in things they see around them. But further to that, being able to, um, you know, again, either um, like communicate that and be able to accept communication from someone um, about what is, what, how they feel about certain behavior. So if someone touches you inappropriately or you touch someone inappropriately, how are you going to talk about it and having the tools to do that? I don't think we're all running to, you know, get our colleagues fired, right? Like that's not at all the, the impetus. No, I, I, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that. But it, I just mean it's unfortunate that that's where it's, that's where it's gotten. And that's, I think, why the or- older generation is a bit more defensive to it and thinks that okay well we get the, we get the message message received and that's it and it's like well no there's a lot more work that needs to be done um a lot more education and it's not about you know justice for these particular horrible most egregious bosses but everyday interactions that make it difficult for women to feel at home in the workplace i don't understand these older women i really don't i i I'm like, you know this shit happens. It's not like, you know, it's one big conspiracy and lie. Why is it, you know what? You know why this this debate has run away from us? Because we let men control the debate. Now men are controlling this fucking debate of something they have no idea about, obviously. Mm-hmm. But we let them just talk. Yeah. And, and, and we let them set the tone. We let them set the rules for this debate. And that's bullshit. It's not about them. It is, but it isn't. You know what I mean? Well, and that's kind of what we got, we're got. we trying to get to in that last op-ed we wrote in the yeah. Ottawa Citizen was that we keep talking about how Me Too affects men and the impact on their lives when we really need to be talking about how it affects women and impacts them. And yes, men should be part of that discussion in trying to reduce instances of harassment because they need to understand what is good and bad behavior. But we shouldn't be talking about how it affects them and inconveniences them. Exactly. We shouldn't be talking about how 
is primarily how men are affected. You're right. We haven't even talked about what constitutes sexual harassment. We have not had a debate where the line is. But no, we got a bunch of frady cat old men and young men, men in general, who have, because they control the media outlets, because they're most of the op-ed um, writers, because they are the ones who are controlling which content gets shown on screen, this is how they've decided to frame this debate. And it just, this whole, the way this Me Too thing has just gone, like, fucking pear-shaped is basically in that way. I don't think it's gotten pe gone pear-shaped where, oh, it's gone too far. To be honest, I don't think it's being controlled by the people it should where in Canada. Whereas in the States, I feel like there's more control with women telling their stories and then, and then framing the conversation. And I don't find that in Canada. In Canada, everything is still controlled by white men, so even the conversation is controlled by white men. Like, I, although, I must say, this, I, I must say, I do kind of look at white women and I say, this is what it's like talking to you. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the conversation being controlled by white men, I mean, we're, we are have to start preparing now for many, many months of Patrick Brown being able to use a campaign and leadership process to run on this single issue of exonerating himself and perpetuating the myth that women falsely accuse men of sexual assault and harassment. I and he has been helped by the media. Mm -hmm. And he is not, and the party had, you know, may have found other ways to bar his candidacy, although I understand that they necessarily couldn't, but. And now, unfortunately, the women he's debating against also have to spend their run on this issue. Well, maybe they should. They, they should to a degree, but, like, it's also frustrating to be like, and now we're all pigeonholed into discussing this fr by having to face this one guy. And instead of having a nuanced conversation that's way beyond him, it's not about Patrick Brown, but it's going to be. And it's going to be about this very specific set of facts. Oh, yeah. And he's, yeah. the women who are at the core of it, who are... You know, the ones who were strong enough to come forward have to, like... And they've already been doxxed. They've been outed. The confidentiality around their names hasn't been honored. And, the, it's... Anyway, all I'm saying is it will be it will be centered around a white man for the next few months, and we need to find ways to get alternate uh, narratives out there. Yeah, so uh, reading some of more of this uh, survey stuff is that... Uh, women, in turn, are divided on their role in avoiding harassment. Nearly all of them change their behavior to avoid being, being harassed. And, yeah, many resent feeling that they have to do so. Because why is the onus on women to change our behavior that is not harassing to accommodate behavior that is completely inappropriate? And I think that that's where the generational difference is. Like the older generation of women are like, well, I've been dealing with this for umpteen years. Why can't you deal with it? Like, why can't you, like, just not be around that person? Da -da 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 -da. And you're just like, I, I almost feel betrayed by them, to be honest. I, I will put it out there. They betrayed us. They are betraying us, the younger generation, because they're the ones who are making this okay in the sense that they are part of the problem. Like, I feel like these older women who are just like, this has gone too far. This is da-da-da-da-da. 
hold back. And there's a lot of tone policing in there too. They need to get the fuck out of the way if they're not going to be helpful. Step aside. Don't have an, I don't want to hear it. I just don't. I'm tired of them. So further into the data, um, 26% of men our age, uh, the 18 to 34 cohort, believe that displaying, sharing, or looking at materials that some might consider sexually suggestive is okay. Well, sure. I mean, that's all of Reddit, right? Like, it's the <laughs> it's, it's like it's, it's that the highest. Yeah, I mean, like that's that group of people. Like that's like that culture, though. Yeah, where sharing memes and jokes and like that kind of content. Um, you Which know, like, like how meme they culture communicate. is fine, but like yeah, yeah. But I mean, like the nature of like the fortune and like all like those sorts of like the fortune. Like this is how old I am. Fortune. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Fortune Magazine? No, no. <laughs> I'm tired. I haven't slept all weekend, to be fair. 4chan. Yes. 4chan. That, that piece Yeah, of I shit. think that, like, in general, we just, as a younger generation, don't respect the division between, like, work and non-work anymore. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. observation. Because that... Expand on that, Erin. Well, <laughs> because, like, what, like... Millennials are a lot more collegial with their colleagues. They like being more social. They're deferring, quote unquote, growing up and having families and owning property to later be because in some places you just can't do that because it's too costly. Um, and so they've got they've built more so stronger social bonds, which mm -hmm. like blurs the lines, which means that you make friends at work that you hang out with on the weekend. But then that behavior comes back into the workplace which could then impact how other people feel because the way of the way they're seeing those people interact with each other do you so think like so like let's say so i have a group of friends that i met at work and now we none of us work together because we all have different jobs but we still are going to each other's weddings and what have you and i can see how if we had continued working together and working like in the same team that our behavior with each other could have made people uncomfortable because we're comfortable making off color jokes. We're comfortable being more um, open about sexual things. Friendlier. You yeah. have a, you have a, yeah. Have and a, I think uh, that yeah. we, pro if that had continued, we would have had to been like very specific in like, this is a time where we don't talk like that with each other because, you know, having like a, you know, a poster or, or a calendar with, like, women bikinis or whatever, or, like, a joke poster up, like, isn't professional. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that, I think that bears investigation because um, we don't have a delineation between home and work. So we don't because we've been encouraged to have work-life balance. Discouraged. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, sorry, yes. We've been discouraged from, like, a work-life balance. We now have work-life integration. Ah. So, in other words, the personal becomes the, the professional and the pre professional becomes the personal. Yeah. Huh. Because we, ta we talk about having, like, be alternate work arrangements, being able to work from home. Um, Interesting. And so the behavior gets, like, fused. You can't, you can't tell which is when you're supposed to act like wit, what. Huh. That makes sense. I mean, I get what you're saying. 
But I feel like in a lot of workplaces, for a long time, people were overly collegial, especially when it was just men in the workplace, or yes. mostly men. And that's where we have, like, the boys' club culture. And a lot of things went by. And then I, I think it's somewhere in between there, as workplaces started to open up to other folks, there was, like, a sign, like like a sense that maybe we don't do that anymore and professionalism, even though, and then it kind of just went underground and it still happened, but people like left, like kept this facade that it was a professional space. Yeah. And I think now what you're saying is it's sort of going back to being chummy, but the chumminess may be to the detriment of some people who aren't in on it and may perceive certain behavior as still being harassment. Yeah. And we're not willing to own that because we're, we're all friends. Come on guys. We're all pals. Yeah. yeah. All right. I wouldn't say anything bad about okay. you, you know. I'm not going to yeah. report you. Yeah. yeah, I would just I would just yeah, add the nuance that it's like it's a new take on what was already happening. Sure. That kind of workplace cliqueness over familiarity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Well, I mean it, it forces me to think about some stuff cuz I definitely have those kinds of working relationships yeah. with folks and it's important to check in. I feel like I see, like, potential harassment complaints all the time, though. I'm like, we can't be mean to this person at work, guys. We're, we're all, like, trained in anti-harassment stuff. I'm like, guys, anyone can follow harassment complaints. Like, right now. Yeah, just put on your text chain. Yeah, it's just, like, just, be, just be a little nicer. Fake smile. Fake smile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to like everyone you work with. Right? No, yeah. no, no, for sure. For sure. Oh, so uh, earlier... This past week, uh, the Trump administration released its draft fiscal 2019 budget, and it proposes to save billions of dollars in the coming years by giving low-income families a box of government-picked non-perishable foods every month instead of food stamps. The Office of Management and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney hailed the idea as one that kept up with the modern era, calling it, quote, blue apron type, a blue apron type program. The high-end meal kit delivery company that had one of the worst stock debuts in 2017 and has since struggled to hold on to customers. Mulvaney said that the administration's plan would not only save the government money, but also provide people with more nutritious food than they already have now. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, widely referred to as SNAP, would be largely replaced by these, quote, harvest boxes of 100% U.S. grown and produced food, and would include items like stable shelf milk, peanut butter, canned fruits and meats, and cereal. Unlike Blue Apron, however, which sends boxes directly to the doors of customers, the federal government would leave the distribution up to states, which means that some states may require recipients to pick up their boxes or undergo drug tests. Uh, so this is entirely paternalistic because it doesn't allow people to make their own decisions, but leaves also a lot of unanswered questions such as how these boxes would be customized for a family that has a child with nut allergies or for those who don't eat certain types of meat out of religious or personal reasons. The internet hated this idea. I don't say, you couldn't even <laughs> read it with a straight face. You know, this is what happens when you get built, like rich people to like run a country who have never been... Who have never... I, I tell this story all the time. Like, this is how fucked up decision makers are. This is how far removed they are, okay? That they think that somehow they have extra capabilities of, of like, like they're the oracle or something. Okay, so mm -hmm. I remember in my old workplace, which was, you know, 
policy driven. Um, I was having a conversation with a director, so somebody pretty high up in the, in the organization, um, a decision maker. And I remember we were talking about um, policy and creating policy and his frustrations with creating policy and blah, 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 blah. And I said to him, well, you know, you can't really create effective policy if you don't know how people are living. And he thought that that was the strangest thing. Like, he looked at me like I had two heads. He's like, well, of course you can. So then I said, oh, really? That's why, you're, that's why Aboriginal policy has been so stellar over the years? Mm. Like, how do you yeah. create policy for people if you don't know how they're living? Yeah. How do you create policy for people if you're not informed of their circumstances, the way they move through their day, their challenges, their pain points, their, their pleasure points, all of that. How do you how do, you do that? You, the answer is you can't, which is why policies have been shit over the past, well, when weren't they, <laughs> actually? No, actually, no. since the 60s, I would say. <laughs> actually, maybe the Moynihan Report and stuff like that and public housing and all mm. of that is, is, is where this shit irks me. But anyway, back to the SNAP program. You mean when corporations had less power, is what you're trying to say. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, one of the mm. takeaways from this weekend was definitely, you know, if the people that you're talking about aren't in the room, then you, you got to try again because you can't, you can't talk for them. Um, and so it definitely doesn't seem like part of this development involved anyone um, who would be affected by food stamps or food boxes. Well, it doesn't even make sense because the way that SNAP is administered now is that, you know, recipients receive like a debit card and they can just use it at places where you mean they have choice and use. agency. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. they get to decide, but uh, like what is best for their family. But like it's how is it less expensive to send a box of like a it's canned goods instead of just a card. It's like, economically inefficient. Well, unless, this is, this unless is you're getting, unless you have a deal with the person purveying the box and there's like some sort of other trade-off, economic trade-off there. Yeah, like, but that's an extra step. That's no, no, I, 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 I mean, I don't think it's efficient. I think that yeah. there is, someone is making money off of this new venture. I, and that's definitely in the background. Of oh, this. yeah. Some corporation yeah. is making money off of this venture. You know what? Donald Trump is the most corporate out of corporate <laughs> presidents. And you know what? I, I'm still laughing at how he's convinced his base that he's not. It's, it's incredible because everything he does is corporate. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that, like, for someone who's so, like, America first, like, this taking away the debit card or whatever the, the card is called um, – means that people aren't going to a physical store. So they're not spending their money and putting it back into the American economy. And then in rural areas, when you've got like small independent grocery stores, they make might go out of business. Mm -hmm. So cool, America first, awesome. Really supporting those American businesses. I think the biggest thing for me about this policy is, is the like shaming around like poverty yes and like the humiliating aspect of like this whole thing well americans further agency away from folks because we don't trust poor people to make patronizing we don't try and yeah and it's like fat it's you know there's fat shaming that's like wrapped up in this like there's like a lot of ableism like enwrapped in this and yeah i i think it's uh i mean it should be deeply troubling 
for everyone who hears about it. Um, well, I, I guess um, the grocery the grocers hate it too. By the way, everybody hates it. Everybody hates it. And um, what I, America does not like poor people. I don't think that this is anything new. They hate poor people. The only time they liked poor people was when everybody was poor. <laughs> you know, like in the Great Depression. Then it was a problem. But poverty is seen as a sin in yeah. America. Mm-hmm. It's like you did something to br- bring this upon yourself. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we're going to treat you like the bad egg that you are. Mm-hmm. It's an extension of debtor's prison. In just It's just that you don't have the bars anymore, the mm-hmm. physical bars. But it's almost as though, it is as though once you're poor you're meant to be there because that is your station in life, which is very anti-American in its way, yeah, in its absolutely. entire concept. It's very European and very British. Absolutely. It's also very, yeah, totally. It's, uh, it's like a caste system. It is. It is a caste system. We're not immune to that here either in Canada. I wow. mean, the, the history of, of shaming um, poor people in the States um, is linked to, like, racialization as well in, like, these really mm-hmm. gross ways and, like, they, you know, in stereotypes of, of laziness, welfare queen, like, mm. you know, caricatures. But we, I mean, even here when we debate whether or not to give, um, you know, even, ta- like, certain tax benefits or other types of um, The minimum things. wage is People get really, how are exactly they going to spend that. it, you know? I mean, who, Don't it, tell me the minimum wage debate isn't partially shaming low-income people. It's, uh, it is. I mean, it's all wrapped up in nice language, but I hear a lot of poor shaming. Mm. Mm. You know, if one were to th- take a long-term sort of... Um, comprehensive, holistic view of these things, one could make the argument that serving these box, these food boxes, when we know that that processed boxed food is bad for you, oh, is putting, going to put more stress on the medical system in the future. Because we already know obesity is a problem. And he, you've had canned fruit. That shit is full of sugar. Oh, It's not even fruit anymore. It's oh. sugar. Also, what's re- also really gross is stable sh- shelf stable milk. I saw that too. I'm like, what is that? Is it powdered? I uh, powdered milk. Is it? Is it powdered milk? Is that really what getting we're all saying? your vitamins there? Like, I just, I, I just talk it's about. It's like they should just mail people a bunch of insure and hope that like they survive like that. Why don't they do for food aid, food aid in Africa and just fly over the place and just drop boxes <laughs> at this point? Because I like feel they, like... They might do that. Like, honestly, that's, it's pretty close. It's pretty they have close drones. They can yeah. drop off food, you know? God. A tender will go out, Amazon will bid, and there'll be Amazon droning. Uh. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you guys, uh, we're in the middle of the Olympics. and uh, We are? <laughs> are we in the middle? You saw my yeah. joke. <laughs> oh. No, I'm 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 truly asking. Yeah, which begs, which 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 brings me back to the whole content thing in the in the in the beginning. Where remember when the Olympics was the only thing on? All your shows were cut. That's right. There was nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. So you kind of had to watch the Olympics, yeah. and it was like this national pastime. Fuck it, 
I just follow Leslie Jones's tweets without context. I know. <laughs> I like. I don't need the context. They're still amusing to me, but that's it. <laughs> Leslie Jones is the best. Uh, anyway, so U.S. snowboarder Sean White won his third Olympic gold medal, solidifying his status as the goat of the halfpipe. Everyone was pumped. Twitter was a was wild, but like we always say, everyone's faves are problematic. In 2016, for White's former bandmate, uh, Lena Zoweda, sued him for wrongful termination and sexual harassment. The lawsuit alleged that White had, quote, repeatedly sexually harassed her and forced his authoritarian management style on her for over seven years. This led her to uh, an abrupt dismissal from the band in 2014 without the payment she was owed. Zawide said that White forced her to watch sexually explicit videos against her wishes, texted and spoke degrading comments to her, and, quote, at one point, White stuck his hands down his pants, approached Zawada, and stuck his hands in her face, trying to make her smell them. Ew. 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 Sean White initially denied everything except the text messages, but ultimately the case was settled in 2017. However, in the Me Too era... All of the bad things about men, about bad men, are being brought back into the light. At the press conference following his win, he was asked about whether he was worried the lawsuit might, quote, tarnish his legacy. And his answer was an attempt at diplomacy that quickly backfired. He said, quote, honestly, I'm here to talk about the Olympics, not gossip. I am who I am, and I'm proud of who I am, and my friends love me and vouch for me, and I think that stands on its own. Uh, the moderator of the press conference uh, cut off the reporter by responding that, quote, we're here to talk about the gold medal and the amazing day we had today, which the moderator then repeated when the next journalist said that they were going to ask the same question. To further annoy us, uh, USA Today reporter Christine Brennan said that was at the press conference and said that not one female journal journalist was asked to give White a question throughout the 13-minute press conference, despite many having their hands in the air. White then went on to apologize not once but twice to two different outlets. His first apologies, in his first apology, he said, quote, I am truly sorry that I chose the word gossip. It was a poor choice of words to describe such a sensitive subject in the world today. In his second apology, he said, quote, I regret my behavior of many years ago, and I'm sorry that I made anyone, particularly someone I consider a friend, uncomfortable. He then added that he has since, quote, grown and changed as a person, as we all grow and change, and I am proud of who I am today. Has he been taking notes from James Franco? Because mm. that's what that sounded like to me. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, when I saw this first pop off, I was like, oh, I'm not surprised. He looks like a big douche. He does. And I'm like, that sport does carry a douchiness factor to it, to be honest. But anyway, he, um, you might want to, you know, research your faves is basically where we're at right now. We're all like finding out our faves are just shit. The trick is to have no faves, have no heroes, <laughs> hold no gods, and, you know, never meet them. I can't give up my love of Michelle. I just can't. Obama? Yeah. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's fair. Fine. She's, okay. she's definitely flawless, okay. and no, I refuse okay. to hear otherwise. I, I refuse. <laughs> I have a no Michelle hate rule. Oh, yeah. 
You're canceled I, if you do. Yeah, you know, there's no, there's no getting around it. But, uh, you know, this guy is, this is what Me Too is for. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, that's the trajectory. Like, first they lash out and say it's gossip and act dismissive because they've never ha- thought, of, they've never given the incident or anything in their life a second thought. Then they get called out and they realize their career may be jeopardized and suddenly there's an apology. Yeah. And suddenly they've reflected and they've grown. Well, how could you have reflected and grown if two minutes ago you were gossip. so dismissed? It was gossip. It never happened. And you dismissed it. You can't have it both ways. So either you actually worked on it and you confronted the issue and you've reconciled with the person that you've wronged or you've turned your attention to or there are people in your life that you can point to who you said brought you to this place. But certainly in a week, you didn't do all that. It wasn't even that. a week. It was, yeah, it was like a day. 48 but hours. It, yeah, yeah. But in a lot of them, it's like, you know, like yeah. whatever. It's like no more than the span of a week. Yeah. And they come around and, oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? I So much has changed. I've learned a lot. No. I've learned the error of You've been my snowboarding way. for 48 hours. You've done nothing on this. Like, <laughs> you haven't come around. Like, who's, like, did you reach out to the woman? Like, did you, like, talk to anyone in your life? Did you ta- go to counseling? Like, did you, like, and I'm not saying you have to go to, but, like, working through this shit is heavy. It's, yeah. So, like, I know that athletes receive a lot of media training, and I can't imagine that the media training that athletes received would have prepared him to answer that question. However, someone on his team on snowboard, snowboarding USA um, should have thought, and particularly him should have like pieced it together. Oh, like we're in this time where sexual harassment and assault are like really at the forefront of the public consciousness. Oh, I settled a lawsuit related to something similar last year, mm-hmm. I should probably prepare some sort of response mm-hmm. or at least think about that as a que- that, that will probably come up, yeah. but no one did. Yeah. You know, and it, there's no foresight and clearly, I mean, that's the thing about settling lawsuits too. Like that wasn't, there clearly was no closure for anyone involved in that process. And the fact that he would say rumors and gossip when he settled, like, <laughs> means that he didn't confront it head on even at that time a year ago he just waved yeah. it off and like cut his losses and moved on from that suit so it again not really owning what happened at yeah. all or his behavior yeah just trying to make it go away yeah it's an inconvenience for yeah him. that's right uh, must be easy must be so nice just to be able to like pay your way out of things well he's He's a particular type of white male, right? He's the all-American white male. I saw his abs. I was like, mm. <laughs> big deal. And, you know, this is the thing. Like, I'm first of all, I'm like, you're an athlete. If you don't have those abs, I'd be like, you're a lazy motherfucker. And secondly, um, it seems maybe I'm getting old and I just don't give a shit about these, these fucking runts anymore. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm just cantankerous. But I, you know... It, we have, like, it's, it was the fawning over him that I was, that just turned me off of him. This, this, this collective sort of media fawning is, is the turnoff. And then when the fawn, when somebody says, you know, that guy's a motherfucker. 
actually. It's like, well, we're not here to talk about that. How dare you talk about that? Da 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 da. Because I don't know, you've just crushed some some dream. I, I media like, I don't know. Maybe you just dried up the media wet dream. I don't get. I don't know. Yeah, and I think we're gonna get into that kind of thing between an artist or an athlete and their body of work later in the podcast uh, in our massages of the week. But yeah, I think that we can. This is something that's been coming up in the conversation since Harvey Weinstein. It's like, oh, but I really like so-and-so's movies or I really like all of these things. I'm really upset that that's ruined for me. Well, I mean, it can be, but you also have to like go in with a critical eye and be like, oh, I can't like worship this person in the same way. Oh, fucking please. Do you know how many movies I've seen that are not black movies that use the word nigger? Give me a break, okay? I love The Godfather as a movie, but they use it like... Yeah. You know? Same with Goodfellas. Yeah. Because I could put that shit... Like, (laughs) do you... Like, I'm inundated with this shit all the time, Mm. being... Dealing with black stereotypes, black tropes, so on and so forth. Quentin Tarantino. I've seen a lot of his movies. I really like Django Unchained. Mm. I really did. And, you know, I can still turn around and say, you're a motherfucking pig. And on top of that, be like, but I love Kill Bill or whatever. I actually do love Kill Bill. Right? Oh, me too. So do I. Right? I really like his movies. Right? I Although like his I will movies say too. the caveat for Kill Bill is that now knowing how she was treated on the set and how they shot particular things, and I think it's that's like when a you different get into that, issue. That's a different thing. But like what you're yeah. saying, which is like a lot of the stuff that we consume is inherently problematic, and we've been consuming it. Why would I stop watching classic films because like now we've like seen them in this different I light? Ha- Look, I am a lover of of black and white yeah. old movies. Yeah. Uh, and they're so and they're so fucking racist. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I'm like. I mean, I still watch Breakfast at Tiffany's despite uh, the like terrible yellow face. Uh, but right? It's there's that, a good I fast example. forward through that part because it makes me cringe. Yeah, but yeah. But I still, uh, still kind of like that movie. I and it's okay. Yeah. Because a lot of things are cultural and part of this Western foundation and and so on and so forth. I can still watch the Ten Commandments and think Charlton Heston's an idiot. There was, is he dead? I think he's dead. Oh, I don't know. Not anyway. The math doesn't add up. He certainly must be dead. I I know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So yeah, like I can still watch Sean. White. Who gives a fuck? What's his name? Sean White. Oh yes, he is. (laughs) (laughs) And still be like, oh, nice, whatever. Bitch. You know I don't even I mean? know her. <laughs> I don't know any of the vernacular. <laughs> yeah, <I don't> <laughs> There's so many angles here. It's it's the fawning over a specific type of white male, then finding out, and then building him up, yeah, and then finding out. And don't get me wrong, he's done. He won how many gold medals? Three, Three gold medals. I get it. You want to fawn. He looks a certain way. You want to fawn. He's the all-American athlete. You want to bring in that, uh, who else is the, well, the Tom Brady-esque of it. I get it, okay? But when somebody says, and there are papers and and procedures to back her the fuck up, that's the other thing, is that she has backup on her story. 
to see that the re- like the response is well we're not going to talk about that well fuck you well and the thing is is that like the f- between his like initial comment about like oh it being gossip to the two different statements and being like oh like I'm sorry that like someone was uncomfortable with my actions like he hasn't grown because like Amy mentioned it's too short of a period of time but also like no women were asked able to ask him a question at the press conference like these women have a job to do they're there to work that's discrimination yeah and heaven forbid they like know about sports or know about snowboarding and they're fucking there at the olympics how do they not know about sports yeah this is my question and there's a reason he didn't like there were no um because he's a misogynist he know he hasn't learned a fucking thing there you go and the fact that this is okay and the fact that this isn't part of the story or a bigger part of the story, I don't know what's with mainstream media. I don't know if they need like a cleanse. Do they need like a, an enema? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but they seem to be missing the fucking point when reporting these things because it was only as a footnote that there were no um, women, female reporters, who were called on. I want to make a joke about preemptory challenges, but it feels inappropriate. It's a little too soon. It's a little way too soon. Oh, okay. All right. So stay tuned for our next segment, Reds and Receipts. Now we're moving on to Reds and Receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others. Amy, do you want to go first? Mm, I don't know if I want to go first. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I'll go first. Okay, <laughs> Erica, do you want to go first? <laughs> I will totally go first. Um, so my rent and receipts has it's based on a New York Times article describing why women's voices are scarce in economics. Really, economics heavy today. Yeah, you know, every now and then I like to, you know, pick on economics. <laughs> And it's because it is so, it is one of the most, like, quoted sort of professions in the public policy sphere, Mm. but it's dominated by men, and it's dominated by white men. Yeah. All right. Nerdy white men, which is a different, which is different from Sean White. You know what I mean? It's a different, it's a different archetype. Sure. Okay. So, um... So the New York Times wrote a really good piece in their, like, their business day blog. And um, so basically, it talks about women's voices and how women's, um, how they're not being portrayed in economics because they're just fewer women. For decades, the number of women studying economics seemed to be increasing easing the persistent scarcity of professional female economists in the United States. But that progress has stalled. New data indicates that the share of women studying the subject in America's universities has flatlined and the pool of prospective female economists may even be shrinking. That pattern would be disturbing in any academic field but because economics has an outsized influence on public policy, 
it means that many more important debates are likely to be dominated by men's voices for years to come. So as an aside, when I was talking about um, my little story about creating policy or decision makers who create policy for people they have no, they know nothing about, this is a good example of how that happens. Okay. So at virtually every level of training and every professional rank within economics, women are a minority. And women are less likely than men to progress at each successive step along the career path. So this imbalance is more lopsided at senior levels. This situation has been called, quote, a leaky pipeline. A new report from the Committee of the American Economics Association provides a sobering picture, however. It shows that since the turn of the century, there has been no increase in the share of women entering the pipeline to become professional economists. About six years after the share of women starting doctoral programs began to shrink, the share of women completing PhDs also began to decline. And seven years after that, the share of women among tenured associate profession professors of economics stopped rising. Now, I'm going to break here and just say that economics in the States is done a bit differently in terms of um, the academic preparation. So we have masters of economics in Canada. They don't really do that in the States. It's basically undergrad to PhD. So oh. that's why they're talking about PhDs and mm -hmm. not like masters. Okay. Okay. The share of female full professors of economics has continued to increase. It is now 14% in those departments with doctoral programs at least in part because gender numbers, greater numbers of women entered economics in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The end of that influx around the year 2000 can be expected to lead to a plateau in full professor ranks down the road. And I would say all things being equal, the proportion will drop as more men get tenured mm -hmm. positions. The scarcity of women economists has already had important consequences. Consider the stark differences of opinion revealed in a 2014 survey of professional economists. Fully 63% of women said income in the United States should be distributed more equally compared with only 45% of men. Female economists were 13 percentage points less likely to say that the United States government is too large 18 percentage points less likely to say the U.S. has excessive government regulation, 20 percentage points more likely to say employers should be required to provide workers with health insurance, and 16 percentage points more likely to say current policies excessively favor economic growth over environmental quality. Perhaps the most telling was the question on pay. Only 14% of female economists said the, the gender wage gap is largely explained by differences in education and voluntary occupational choices, while 54% of male economists agreed with that notion. The most striking statistics of all come from a survey taken over 20 years ago in which 98% of women economists agreed with the pro proposition that, quote, there is a good old boy network in the economics profession. A smaller majority of men agreed. 
And without more women in that field, in the field of economics, the issues of social, that pertain to social equality will not be championed. Right. They will not even probably be presented in public. We, we hear a lot of, whenever we make our statements and so on and so forth with every piece that we've written, we've, we've always been asked for data. Well, where's the data on this? Well, you need somebody to interpret the data. Do you not? Like, we're not all going to be handed raw data and then just crunch the numbers ourselves. It is in that interpretation that these persistent um, gender inequalities matter. And when we're making public policy, especially from people who are marginalized and outside of the system, who are poor, et cetera, et cetera, these like women's voices aren't being heard. And they are coming from a place of data-driven research. So my point is, is that perhaps the data partially or the research partially isn't out there because of who handles the research. That's my point. Huh. I know. I never thought of it like that. I try. <laughs> <laughs> Comments? You're a lawyer, so tell us about the law profession. In terms of losing talent? I mean, it's... Um I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure there are a lot of similarities in, in these types of areas, and then in the um, research focus or the work that people then self-select into doing, and how much is pre-written based on what's already been done, and room for ingenuity and whatnot. But I think with economics, it's the research has such um, uh, a sort of a baseline. Like there has to be research, right? Mm -hmm. um, it holds such an importance in terms of the interpretation, the analysis, and what comes out of it, um, that who is doing the research and what is being researched all of a sudden comes into question. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these persistent inequalities that are revealed, that are observed, have much deeper origins than we think in anything. I'm not just talking about, um, you know, for example, income inequality. Right. It's not just about, oh, well, the rich get richer and they get this and that and the other. W the stuff that underpins it is most likely economic. But if we don't have the personnel who are looking beyond your neoclassical model of economics or looking beyond um, what is popular in the financial economics fields, and then trying to apply it to labor economics, right. and so on and so forth. If we don't have that kind of pushback, that kind of scrutiny, then we come out with the same old policies. Mm -hmm. Because economics does not change. It's not, like, it doesn't bring in anything new. It's not, it's very backward looking. And so, and th that tries to forecast out. Mm -hmm. But you're forecasting based on certain assumptions, right. based on research that you've already based on previous research too. That's the other thing. Um, and all the previous research has been done by yeah, ding, white ding, men. Ding. And I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, from their perspective. Yeah. And, and a lot of the theorists and uh, like models that are used have been. That's right. Yeah. 
developed? I mean, I don't know of many economic theorists who are women. It's usually, again, just women are relegated in economics to health, to childcare. That's what I mean. It's sector-driven, and then it's isolated out into these areas, exactly. and there's no like cross-pollination across exactly. these things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you see also a division between uh, long racialized in the economic field around like international um, economic models, um, like southern model, models developed in the south, or models around development that don't cross integrate into the work that we're doing here in the West and they're like either imposed or even if they come out from these, um, I guess, Southern perspectives or like the global South is like the development lingo for like those types of economic yeah. models. Like they're, again, they're not connecting back. Yeah. There's, there's like the legitimized style, yeah. economic model that's for the like Western industrial countries and, and then everything else is like second tier. International development is a good point because the the um now i'm now i'm messing with my acronyms the world bank and the imf base their international development um aid through these models yep. so it's not like they're inconsequential mm -hmm. during the 90s and that's why that's why everybody around the world hates them mm -hmm. is because because they said you need more open trade you need this, you need that, you need the other. It devastated a lot of financial resources for people in these countries. Yeah, and absolutely. it was imposed upon them. That's right, yeah. Based on models yeah. that, like you said, they're not cross-pollinating. So they're based on models that were developed for Western world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it devastated a lot of countries. Yeah. So that is, like, if you want to say, oh, well, why isn't so, such and such country doing better? Why is it? And if you want to talk about, quote, unquote, shithole countries, <laughs> look at that. Mm -hmm. Because that's exactly how that round happened. Mm -hmm. You know, and I say round because there have been a lot of shithole policies that make what, what, what some like to refer to as shithole countries. And they're coming from your policies. Right. So, uh, you know, the fact that these policies are not informed by different perspectives is a huge problem. And it's a huge problem in economics. And uh, to me, the, the entire discipline needs an overhaul. Um, when I was doing my thesis, I studied, I questioned whether or not the ethnicity variable in surveys so if you do, you know, your, can, your statistics can, yep. your stats can survey, and you do the long survey, you, you, get, you get to choose mm -hmm. which ethnicity you are. So it, my thesis was the idea of who are the people who identify with their sort of parental ethnicity, right. if, and because these are all Canadians that we're talking about, people were born in Canada and um, so are you more likely to go with that or a more generic sort of ethnicity and people are like well how can you how can you do that I'm not talking about race I'm talking about ethnicity mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is different mm -hmm. right so in some uh, in some of the um, not in some ethnicity uh, 
they do go with the more generic sort of Canadian um, identity. Mm. Uh, and those people may tend to be of a higher income bracket. Okay, that is really interesting. Yeah, so how do you then interpret returns to ethnicity mm. if it's self-selected? Mm -hmm. That introduces a whole bunch of bias. And anyway, there's a lot of economic fascinated yeah yeah apparently i've always been interested in this and i'm uh, thinking about like all the social implications of it yes. and, like, where my mind goes but right. like i think that's super um cool to think about it just made me think of like that feeds like that validates if that like if that theory holds it validates like notions of um you know wanting to be like the perfect immigrant or the perfect minority right. and like all those yeah. like ideas that's that people want to exactly distance themselves from what I we're was not those about. and that's how we mm -hmm. got there yeah, and yeah, yeah. it's great that there's receipts for that yeah. if that's the case and <laughs> i like i did more the the econometric analysis yeah. of it um there is a dude named i'm gonna just, like his name was trejo the guy who who kind of started playing with those variables mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, and I, I think he's like a, a Mexican-American. Mm -hmm. But imagine if, if he, mm -hmm. being a non-white male, do you think a white male would have come up we with that? We never stumbled on that problem. I exactly. Would, yeah, yeah. And you would never think about it. And the then other, there would not be yeah. a piece for me to latch on yeah. to mm -hmm. yeah. as you know, a racialized yeah. female economist. Yeah. And that kind of thing had never been done before sort of, in Canada. Are there numbers to validate immigrant work ethic as a, as a theory? Because I would just really love to have those facts. Like, I just... Mm. You could look at the data for that. I, that'd be great. I think there are two... <laughs> there are two economists that I know of that do a lot of work with immigration. One is David Card. Mm. Another one, his name is Borjas. I think he's at... Uh, I can't remember his first name. Is it Hector? I can't remember. Anyway, he's at... Um, Card is in, Ber in the Berkeley system maybe like sorry in the uc system i think he's at berkeley mm -hmm. and borjas i think is at at harvard and so i mean yes there's a lot of immigration sort of data i guess but you know being an immigrant you definitely are more conscious of perceived biases yeah and what you're con and showing and demonstrating contribution and being exactly, valued exactly exactly yeah. And those things are things to interpret yeah. and explore, too. I well, saw... It's, I, yeah, it's just frustrating because we're always challenging these ideas that, like, we're just engaging in identity politics. But actually, I think, like, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is extremely founded in facts um, that, you know, like, by facts, I mean, like, data can be data-driven, just no one is looking at it in the right, right lens. Because um, they don't have the personnel yeah. to Like, I have all sorts of it. arguments I would just, like, love someone to just provide me those, like, yeah. numbers for. I know. <laughs> be like, because I feel it in my heart and I see it every day, but that's <laughs> not enough for people. <laughs> I, I mean, know. Patrick Brown uses anecdotal evidence. So <laughs> there you go. And, and some don't use evidence at all, like the head of uh, the Ottawa police. Yeah services union there yeah. who needs who even needs anecdotal evidence but, yeah. okay so there's my rent and receipts <laughs> so like I, I really thought it was important because when we start thinking about these issues we only see what's revealed mm. right so like a revealed preference very I know every economist listening to this is like I hear you yeah 
Um, but it's like an iceberg, right? There's so right. much underneath the surface that we don't know about and we don't know how they connect. And so we don't look at things in this dynamic way. Economists are also very linear in their thinking yeah. and do not think holistically. They do not think in dynamic ways. So even the intersections of, um, of let's say, what they were calling the pipeline. So even, even what goes into that, okay, so there are, different, there are different reasons that people are going to choose to go into economics. Maybe people who are better at math, so there's a math component, maybe women who are better at math just have more options. Mm. That's a possibility too. However, I think it's more than that. That is, but it's not the only possibility. And that's what we don't look at, is that we want an answer. We don't want to look at the suite of um, issues that feed into that revealed preference. Mm. Okay, that's my piece. Yeah. Okay, Amy, do you want to go next? Uh, yeah, I ha I feel like a little apprehensive about this one. I think Why? I've said that before, all of them. All right, just brace yourselves. Um, oh. So, no, I wanted to talk about Marie Heenan because she's been in the news recently. She did a talk at U of T last week, and she's coming out in support of the Me Too movement, saying it's a necessary social awakening. Um, obviously, I wasn't there to witness her talk live, but I followed some people's live tweets, and there's been a lot of coverage about what she said um, in support of the movement and, you know, kind of calling on systemic change. She says, you know, the criminal justice system isn't um, a microcosm of society. It's kind of bound up in its own thing, that this movement has been a necessary, again, a necessary awakening, a necessary barometer, a gut check. Um, and it just seems um, <clears throat> really interesting that she's gotten to this place after having um, gone at the um, victims, the complainants in the Giangameshi case so hard not like a year, two years ago, right? Um, and it just felt really hypocritical to me that she was coming, <coughs> coming from this perspective all of a sudden uh, without really doing the work of owning some of her own complicity. And she's being kind of celebrated for stepping out and saying these things. And she's been celebrated a lot for being the tough personality that she is. And I think all of that is really admirable. Um, but a, but some of the statements she made last week were things like, well, there is no evidentiary restriction around what you can and can't do um, in criminal courts, which is like patently untrue. Um, so I just kind of wanted to like reflect a little bit also from like a slightly academic perspective about why, again, like that is not actually like based in anything. So there is a principle in criminal law that's been established um, called called what well not it's an established practice that's been condemned it's called whacking the complainant and this term um it's, it's been referred to in a 1999 decision of the supreme court which specifically held that it's not permitted to whack the complainant meaning using stereotypes regarding victims of sexual assault and this is a practice that marie heenan engaged in during the Giangameshi case and i would just really like her to uh, address her own complicity um, in participating in that. 
And I think a couple, and think in the last pod or maybe the pod before that, I talked about how Jagmeet Singh had also, when asked about the Me Too movement and whether or not he would feel um, part, like you know, if he felt like he had a, uh, something in his past that might come come out, and he said, well. You know, as a lawyer, as a defense lawyer, there are probably things that I did that won't look good uh, because the law is archaic and I, and I may have said things that weren't, wouldn't be culturally appropriate and outside of the courtroom. Um, but it's important to highlight that there, there are um, researchers and academics and lawyers like David Tanovich and Elaine Gregg, who, or Craig, uh, who are lawyers and law professors by trade who've written and researched this problem extensively. And they uh, have reviewed court transcripts, um, they've reviewed the websites of different lawyers um, uh, across the country, and it's, a com it's still, despite the Supreme Court condemning this practice, it's still a widely practiced thing. And I'll just give you some examples of what that looks like. So whacking occurs when a defense lawyer uses the availability of a preliminary inquiry uh, for the purpose of persuading a victim to give up. And in one advertisement on a lawyer's website, they bragged about uh, a case involving a gang rape of a 14-year-old girl who, um, who quit after becoming so frustrated by this lawyer's questions. And they, they boast about that. Come to our law firm because this is the kind of result we'll get. Ugh. It occurs when defense counsel boldly tries to use 15th century painting depictions uh, painting, depicting women as a symbolic representations of slander, ignorance, suspicion, fraud, or conspiracy in his closing address as a memorable tool of persuasion. Uh, it, it happens when young, fragile indigenous women is cross-examined for days about consent and conspiring to lie in a case that had five witnesses, eyewitnesses, including four police officers, two of whom had pulled the accused off the complainant. And yet they're still uh, going after this line of questioning, which has no basis, no known basis, in fact. When a lawyer virtually scoffed and challenged a young complainant as part of a vigorous and somewhat brutal cross-examination on the fact that she had failed on her repeated attempts to commit suicide, requiring the trial judge to observe that their reasoning would suggest that if she only had succeeded at killing herself, she would ha be credible. So they challenged whether or not she could have... It goes on, you know, questioning whether the vaginal area was moist after being digitally penetrated. Um, those sorts of, like, upsetting things that people do talk about. And, of course, people coming back and re-engaging in sexual activity with the complainant, uh, or with the, rather, the accused after they filed a complaint. And if you recall some bits of the Gian Gameshi case, those were tactics that Marie Heenan certainly engaged in, digging into the past of... Uh, the, the women who had come forward. And I feel like if, w you know, she's trying to recast her career, but I think we have an obligation to challenge uh, the women who, you can't just say I'm a criminal defense lawyer and, you know, right. the rules kind of don't apply to me or I have to defend, because there are rules and you're choosing to ignore them. There are practices that have been condemned by the Supreme Court and or have been in the, like, deterring women from reporting time and time again. And I'm not repeating these stories in any way to deter women from reporting or going through the criminal justice process. I think we know that it's flawed already, but I think we need to hold the people who are, um, you know, managing those systems and, and actually part of, part of that justice process to, to a higher account and to their um, ethical and moral obligations. And just because Marie Heenan is suing Harvey Weinstein now on behalf of one of his victims 
doesn't mean it absolves her history of ignoring uh, her own complicity. Yeah, I think that just kind of further goes to a lot of what we've talked about in the last few weeks about being a good ally Mm -hmm. um, and just showing that you have done the work to earn that status. Totally. And and it, and it's, um, it is work and it's not overnight and it's a constant education. Um, but it's either willful blindness on her part or active manipulation to say that there aren't rules of evidence. Um, there are also rules that were brought in, um, under a former prime minister, former minister of justice, Kim Campbell around not using the past sexual history of complainants, um, and victims and, Criminal defense lawyer tried to try to work around that, and they're in the wrong. They're absolutely in the wrong. But this is this is okay. So, can we separate her from her greatest hits? This is the question that we were we were talking about before. I don't like Kim Campbell recently tweeted about about women not like wearing bare arms in like on in, TV, on TV, and I'm just like, honey, right. really, right? I understand. My point is you can't um, make a career and a living off of using these tactics and promoting yourself as the kind of lawyer who can get these results. And she did during the Jiang Gameshi case. She made a point of putting herself out there as being someone who is, you know, fighting tooth and nail for her, for the accused. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. And Mm -hmm. she has done nothing in the year and a half or two years that it's been since that trial to remedy any of that. And she's sees this movement and she sees Mm -hmm. money in the lawsuit that she is now leading. Uh, Marie Heenan's firm does white collar crime. Right. That's what she specializes in. Mm -hmm. She is not helping victims Mm -hmm. and she is not helping poor lowly accused. She does not do legal aid. Okay. Mm -hmm. She sees an opportunity and that's what she is engaging in now. And there, and, and she's giving misinformation about the role of criminal lawyers, criminal defense lawyers. And she's not the only one, but if she's going to put herself out there in this way, she needs to be called out. I agree. Yep. That's I, it. You'll get Maybe it. it's easy. I don't no, know. No, no, no. <laughs> no. That's she's, what this show is she's, about. She's got fans. <laughs> They'll come for me. They'll. It's fine. I mean, I maybe they'll have There's maybe they'll have twenty seven followers. Uh, there, there, there are there are unfortunately a lot of Marie Heenan stands. You see, like she is like she's risen. She carries herself a certain way. She's like I'm not begrudging her that she has a successful practice, but I but that you make a successful practice on immoral tactics. You know why? And then it's, try to trade on that later. That's what irks me. Yeah. Yes, but you know why she has fans is because she looks like she's in charge. She's she's a boss. But exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's why. And for some, and even for women, like for for some people, that in itself is enough. Mm -hmm. And because she is different. She does look different from any lawyer you've seen. She looks like she's in charge. She looks like she makes the rules. She looks like, I mean, she's got a great style. I I will just, (laughs) I will just, her style is killing it. And she knows, and this is how savvy she is. She's really savvy. This is how savvy she is. She knows that her job is not being a lawyer. 
yeah, she's offering like a full set of services. Bam. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that in itself is savvy. She's very media savvy in that sense. Now I'm, I'm, so I'm giving her her dues, right? Yeah. But I agree with you. You can't, you can't have it both ways. You just can't. Like you can't, I was surprised to hear her. And then I was like, I'd better wait to see. Cause I, then I saw it was on the docket and then I, I'm like, let me just wait and see what her underlying motivations are. So she has, um, a, a lawsuit against Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. She's one of those. She's one of those. Cause I heard he was being sued. Mm-hmm. He's being yeah. sued, I'm sure by many, many people. This was, yeah. uh, an Ooh, New York state is suing him. That's yeah. what oh, it yes, is. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. another one. Yeah. So I he's see. representing one of his former assistants and, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's that's great, and if that's the kind of work she wants to be doing going forward, that's fantastic. But I think then she should be also doing advocacy about enforcing, pra- like, enforcing against those practices that she used to engage in. So that's that would be the difference between being a frenemy of the Me Too movement yeah. and being an actual advocate. Totally. Um, that's a great comparison. I love that. <laughs> I, I've been. I've I had feel like I'll be using that again. I've had. I've had. I've had. No, you know why? Is because I was listening to Eric B. and Rakim, like old, old, old in the '88, and that's where the the like the actual term comes from. Oh. And then with the Sex in the City, like you know, yeah. spat. Yeah. I'm yeah. like frenemies. Yeah. But I yeah, it. it. I yeah. There are a lot of frenemies of feminism out there, <laughs> and. Um, Frenemies. I, I think, think we, we found our tie- episode title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. If she were really, and this is like, we always get like, well, how do you know the difference? You don't know me. And I'm like, I see what you have not done. Yeah. You didn't show up. You, Bam. You, you weren't there. And yeah. then suddenly when it was, again, like financially convenient. convenient and yes. they like very clearly laid out path. And it just goes to show when it's not convenient for you. And when you it's too hard. That, when it's too hard and you do it, then we believe you. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm like done with my whole little. <laughs> I, I woke up at rent, in rent and receipts. Look at that. <laughs> All right. So my rent and receipts is a, uh, a piece from fashionista.com. So you guys, it's fashion month. Uh, and New York Fashion Week just ended, and now we're in London Fashion Week. Uh, and the fashion industry is finally getting the memo that representation matters in the fashion industry uh, with runways and magazines featuring more models of color, more trans and non-binary models, and more plus-size models, though not enough. Um, however, one place that's still sorely lacking in diversity is street style. By and large, street style galleries across the internet are dominated by the same thin, cis, white women with a few... Notable exceptions of influential women of color sprinkled in, and very rarely, maybe a plus-size woman. While fashion weeks are inherently about privilege, attracting a very specific wealth demographic, street style now, as compared to, you know, six years ago when I would go to uh, fashion weeks, uh, it feels much more contrived and formulaic. The writer of this piece says, quote, street style used to be about true personal style. It used to be fun. We can still give space for those influencers who are obviously an essential part of Fashion Week, but is, it, but is it that hard to find people who look different? I've seen them at the shows, I've seen them backstage, I've seen them outside the venues, 
and I've watched as street style photographers have dropped their camera and deemed them unworthy. To be sure, there are still well-established photographers working the scene who have an eye for interesting, unique style, but by and large, it seems like the sidewalks are dominated by swarms trained to follow the hordes to the next skinny girl, sometimes even endangering others, shoving them in the frenzy to get the shot, even at busy intersections. So uh, I used to be a fashion and lifestyle blogger, and I have been to New York Fashion Week a couple times, and I've seen the, the craziness um, of street style and it's crazy. And I love looking at street style photos, but absolutely. Um, these photos are the same people. It's the Olivia Palermo's. It's all of the models in their off duty model clothes. I hate her. (laughs) (laughs) She's just, she is just privileged. She's just white. It's the Mira Dumaslava. Yeah. Like, Olivia Palermo. And then people are like, she has such great style. Jesus. And I'm like. It's, yeah, you can, <laughs> it's easy to have good style when you can afford it and when you're thin and whatever. And, like, it's. Also, you're she's, not dressing yourself. Usually there's other people who are involved oh, in that. this is why I hated her. Because remember when she was on the, the show with. The city. Was it the city with, 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 with Whitney? Yeah. Yeah. And she was a bitch. Yeah. And she was a. She was an entitled bitch. Like, this this woman lifted a finger to do nothing, yet had a job. And then, like, they were... Okay, so let me just backtrack. Olivia Palermo is this, like, street style... Um, I guess she's now, like, part socialite, part business person, but I don't know what her business No, really because is. she's no, never had a job means. in her life. She was born through wealth, raised through wealth. Yeah. She landed a lucrative... Like a Gigi Hadid, is it? Yes. She landed this this internship at Elle magazine with former Hill star Whitney Port. Port. And, um, and Whitney was always the one who was working. Mm-hmm. She worked her ass off. That chick hustled. And then there's Olivia literally, like, sitting there doing her nails... And while everybody else did the work, she sat on her ass. And then Josie of, like, Elle yeah. loved Olivia because she was from wealth. It was just it was just disgusting, actually. You know, and Josie's Canadian. I have to go. I'm Googling her because I don't know what she looks like. She, she. I regret everything. Now. Yeah. But it's, I mean, but it's like even all the, like, then you've got, like, all of the bloggers. You've got the blonde salad. Yeah. You've got. I don't even know. Miroslava Duma, who is also trans and homophobic. Um, but then you've, then you've got, like, it's the same um, minorities that are in the photos, too. You've got Song of Style. Yeah. You've got, I mean, you know, Eva Chen, who I love. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah, it's always the same people, whether or not they have good style or whatever. It's just because they're, they're a name mm-hmm. and they're thin and they're not. I think this is what happens. So, um, around... Okay, so Instagram, like, basically, so I used to be a makeup blogger, so I cure you, <laughs> okay? Because, again, it's it's same with makeup. It's all those the same faces or the same type of marginalized people, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a type. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're black, you can't be too dark. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're overweight, you have to look like Ashley Graham. Who is not? I don't even consider really plus size. She's normal size. Yeah. She's she's yeah. It, 
Yeah. She's normal size and she has a flat stomach. And yeah. I think that's the most upsetting thing. Yeah, exactly. Or if you're, um, or if you're like Asian, you have to be like part like millionaire or something. I feel like there's this like millionaire look. Well, there's the roomy Neely no- look. Yeah. But then there's like the very quirky. Right. Um, Susie Bubble look. Right. Susie Bubble is another one. Okay. There you go, which has its own, you know, yeah. thing. She's very Iris Apple. Right. Right. Who I love and yeah. follow on Instagram. I'm just over here Googling. I know. I, I, <laughs> I figure that this is very inside I just, fashion. I just want our listeners to know that they're not alone. If this is <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, I, I, so around, so Instagram got hot 2010. Um, all of a sudden, fashion was accessible to everybody through these same blogs, right? The Sartorialists, Man Repeller, um, all of those. Those were huge. Yeah. Even even Pop Sugar is another Mm -hmm. one. Um, Even Fashionista Racked and all that started out there. But if you look at Racked, Fashionista, and Business of Fashion and all those blogs, they take they look at fashion through a social lens and have amazing, amazing pieces, yeah. right? But I find that there's this side of fashion and fashion blogging that has not evolved past the pictures and the sartorialist mm-hmm. and the street style and the this and the that. Trust me, I know exactly what you think. And these people like may still be considered fashion blogs or they may have evolved into lifestyle blogs. Yeah. But yes, I totally agree with that. And I think that's a completely different conversation because I know a lot of people like that mm-hmm. who just pretend that everything's all hunky-dory and rosy. That's right. And We're they, in a new time. They don't haven't evolved to understand that, you know... Um, consumption has changed and people want to have more sustainable clothes. They want to have more um, capsule wardrobes that they don't need mass amounts of clothing and shoes to just take up space. Um, They don't under, they haven't addressed social issues in terms of weight or race um, in terms of the fashion industry. They don't. And we probably don't want them to. True. That's true. Right. Like, let's be honest. I don't want to hear from um, the blonde salad about fucking what it's like to be blonde. Okay? Like, I don't need that. Um, we get oh, sorry, it's the blonde salad. Can we just sit on that for a second? I know. What a bad blog name. I know. Two of my least favorite things. <laughs> too much? Was that too much? No. Because I had different thoughts. Because I just watched Chris Rock's, like comedy special and all I could think of was tossing salad and that wow. like, yeah, that's a whole other thing I like so when I think of it so it's just not going well in my head right now wow there's a joke there but it's a lot darker yeah it's a it's no it's no but but anyway yeah I think that like street style photographers need need the education because like people can wear cool clothes and have good style and it's not about fitting into a box that's right and that's what, and so when I say that, that it made fashion accessible to everybody, but also it brought fashion to its knees because what I'm saying, the internet basically, because all of a sudden 
w- like we're we're bar- barely talking about New- about New York Fashion Week. It used to be a huge thing. Well, that's because no one shows there anymore. Exactly. Okay. Nobody. But why doesn't anybody show there anymore? Because basically, you you have um, an old structure that doesn't seem to be working with new. Um, working within like a new technological paradigm still. And so it seems it seems as though it's it's just this ironic sort of cause and effect thing that the people who caused fashion to open up are also closed themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's my point. I Altogether. Like, I want to talk about this later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so misogynist of the week. Ugh, guys, this one makes me so angry. Not because I have a strong feeling towards this group of people, but because the whole situation is just so fucked. So our misogynist of the week is the Canadian pop rock band Headley, um, who this past week received allegations of sexual misconduct when a woman on Twitter who is known publicly as Only T, uh, saw lots of tweets about Headley and finally decided to go public with her story of sexual misconduct by the band when she was 18. Since then, she has been encouraging others to come forward with uh, strangers messaging her and telling her their stories for her to share on their, her platform. So T has been screen capping these, um, hiding the identity of the, pe- identity of the people, and then publishing them on her Twitter feed. The allegations include many stories of the band offering to buy underage girls drinks, some as young as 14, while others said that the lead singer touched them inappropriately without consent. Since the allegations have come out, Headley has been cancelled by the Junos, aka the Canadian Grammys, where Headley was a performer for this year's show, the band's management, the philanthropic organization behind We Day, which had a long-term relationship with them, Uh, The opening acts on their current tour, Chorus Radio, which announced that it was temporarily suspending all airplay of their songs across 30 music stations in Canada. Uh, CBC Music, which dropped all of Headley's music from its streaming services and radio. And Bell Media, which confirmed that it has removed Headley's songs from radio stations. So Headley released a lengthy four-paragraph statement. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically, they say that... Um, this is a conversation they believe is important within the music industry, um, which doesn't have a good history or track record of treating women with respect and that they appreciate the bravery of those who have come forward. Uh, and then they say, quote, however, if we are to have a meaningful, open and honest discussion, we all have to accept and respect there. There are at least two sides to every story. Nope. The re- <laughs> The recent allegations against us posted on social media are simply unsubstantiated and have not been validated. We would hope that people will bear in mind the context in which these unsupported accusations have been made before passing judgment on us as an individual or as a band. And then they go on to say that, quote, while we are all now either married or have entered into committed long-term relationships, There was a time in the past where we engaged in a lifestyle that incorporated certain rock and roll cliches. However, there was a line that we would never cross. 
penetration? Was that the line? I, I don't. It definitely know. wasn't engaging with minors. No, that was not the line. No, it. This is. I'm sorry. Two sides. No. Yeah, there no. there are no two sides to any injustice, but definitely not to these allegations. Yeah, especially when like someone is collecting stories from strangers on the internet. Now, I just want to read one of them to you because I read some of them last night and they are horrific. Okay, well. Um, so. Content warning. <laughs> yeah, content warning. Uh, so one of the messages that T received said, hey, I saw your tweet about a platform for sharing uh, gross Headley experiences and I want to include my voice without being named. I went to a Headley VIP event when I was a few weeks shy of 16. I was second to the front in line and Jake, one of the band members, basically brushed off the two girls in front of her, uh, grabbed her and pulled her into the photo area. While they were having their photos taken, he whispered in her ear about wanting to take her for drinks. Um, he then asked her how old she was, even though she clearly looked 16 and had braces. Um, <laughs> dude, I'm about to get braces. That was so rude. <laughs> That's what it says. I know. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> You're getting braces? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, and then she rejected his advances, making sure to add that she was underage, and he asked her to come back when she was a bit older, and then kissed her on the cheek as uh, she left. And then the encounter left her with a bitter taste in her mouth. And she, as a teen, she was super flattered that a man had taken notice of her. Um, she was in the front row of the show, and that singer jumped down and cr into the crowd and held her hand for one of the songs, even after she had turned him down. But the worst is then what happened to her. She then goes on and says, quote, I got home and logged into Facebook to see that they had selected girls from my high school from the crowd to hang out with them after. These girls posted photos, drinking beers, smoking, being on the tour bus, and kissing the guys. The girls were two years below me, meaning they were in the grade nine, oh, meaning no. that they were 14 years old. Ever since, there has been an obvious cloud over Headley's image for me, but I had no idea the extent until now, and I wanted to make sure at least I shared this with someone. Damn. Yeah, there's there's no good defense with saying you engaged in rock and roll cliches of kissing underage girls. It's like, are you David Bowie? Like, that's the only person who could have said that. Like, it's not, we're not in that era. This isn't the 70s. We don't have groupies. Like, what rock and roll cliches in 2004 Canada are you referring to? Where you like pull up fourteen year olds and like take them out, like it makes no sense. But also, if there were photos on the internet, then obviously they're not unsubstantiated. Oh yeah, no, the whole thing is definitely substantiated. I'm not even getting into sure. that. I'm just saying, like the idea that like even if these things happen, the most that they engage in were rock and roll cliches. It's like the cliches of like seventies era, like six, like not even like sixties era bands with like you know. Yeah. Like young groupies and, you know, it's not, that's not the world we live in. We haven't lived in that world for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Why do you think this like, is at all acceptable? At least, at least 25 years. Yeah. Many years. Many years. Um, what's that movie called? Uh, like Kate. Famous. Thank you. Kate oh, Hudson had it. a, had a full career already. <laughs> since that was acceptable mm -hmm. i mean dude like i this is i i love these statements 
you know why? Because I know they're going to be full of shit. Also, the fact that they're in long-term relationships and or married really means nothing. That yeah, it's like means when Pat- yeah. trash. It's like said, when Patrick Brown. Sister. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I, that's chaos. exactly what I was thinking, too. I was just waiting for, for no, that No, I break. was going to say, <laughs> like when Patrick Brown said he can't wait to settle down and have kids, and that's his big regret in life. Did you hear that one? Yes. Like... Well, if you wanted to settle down and have kids, maybe you shouldn't have been going out to the bar and, like, getting people drunk while you managed to miraculously stay sober. That whole getting other people drunk while you stay sober is a red flag of For sure. any yes. predator. For sure. Yep. Yep. And, and, yeah, because it's all about control, right? And with Headley, the idea that they would, like, ask the women if they were underage, like, there was an awareness there. and They, they I, knew enough. They knew enough. And then they also ignored all of that. And it's like, do you, like, are you asking people to lie? But like, cause someone, yeah, yeah. So that was in that one, that one story that I read, um, the girl was like, yeah, I think they wanted me to lie and say that I was 18, but I was like, oh, like I'm going to go see my mom. I'm 16. Hi. I'm getting picked up outside the show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd never heard of Headley's until now. Like, I not had, now, but when they were trending. Yeah, I had heard of Headley, but I don't remember any of their songs. I've definitely, well, heard, some of, I've definitely <laughs> heard their music. I don't listen to it. I've never listened to it. But, like, I listen sure. to, like, radio in the car, and, like, they come on, and I'm like, ugh. Um, but I, I find this radio thing very interesting because, like, Canada has Canadian content laws, which require a certain percentage of Canadian made content. So that's, content. like, 50% Headley right now. No, they got, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's really interesting to me that, like, they're like, oh, that so many stations that own a lot, like, companies that own stations have decided to not play their music right. when it play, when they play a lot of Headley to begin with mm-hmm. due to Canadian content laws. But they're still playing Chris Brown. They're still playing R. Kelly. When Chris Brown is, like, literally has a criminal record and R. Kelly has a sex cult. Playing R. Kelly. People play a remix to Ignition all the time. And you know what? Yes, but it's I doubt jam. that CBC Music is playing R. Kelly and Chris Brown. Sure. CBC may probably or not. Or Chorus Radio. Chorus, yeah. They have two they have two Ottawa. They have two a pop two pop stations in Ottawa. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'll, okay. Fine. Like okay. they play yeah. Uh, I mean the issue like that just because Headley is the only thing you're aware of and that's what you... Like, the Canadian content laws are not there for you to pick the lowest hanging fruit and just play that. So if this is, like, a reminder for them to, like, discover artists or play shit that they don't normally play, good. I welcome it. Um, in terms of the hypocrisy, I mean, the Chris Brown thing will always be weird and contentious. I don't think a criminal record, uh, you know, prevents no, but, like, you from being on the radio. Like, oh, well, he's, they've got these but, like, yeah, they have this, like, moral, like, problem. I think the R. Kelly thing is, like, super reprehensible. When people ask me to play, you know, Ignition, because I do often try to DJ loosely sure. on my iPhone at parties, I refuse to do it. Because that's definitely the kind of, that's, like, one where I can't dissociate the artist from the art. Yes. To get back to that earlier conversation, because it's just so grotesque how much he has gotten away with. But that's because his art is part linked to his that like come on like if you've ever heard the the album 12 play you know where where he this is way back yeah where he does has bump and grind and so on and so forth his his marriage to Aaliyah and he was her protege for her music like all of that 
that you, like you can't separate that because it's so intertwined. Right? You listen to Aaliyah? I do. I do. I of course I do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I recognize that Ignition's a jam. I recognize that Run It is a jam. <laughs> sure. But I'm not going to choose to listen to them. If someone plays them at a party, you know what? Yeah, I'll like sing along and like whatever, but like I'm not going to support them myself. And I, no, I definitely do not I play can't them even in my do that classes. much. Like my mind has sort of shut down. But I also, anytime someone plays, I fought people over blurred lines before. I'm like, we can't mm. do this. Yeah. Mm. I am yeah. getting on the like airplane. I am like elbowing you. You are not in charge of this shit anymore. Also, that's not really that good of a song. It's a terrible song. I mean, it's he's had better R&B it's okay. before. Terrible. I'm just saying, it's okay. Like there are worse songs, so there are it's definitely po- better songs. It's poorly written. It's amateur. It's not a good song. Um, I do want to bring something up here. Uh, how many people turn to radio for their music consumption? Whenever I rent a car, car, <laughs> only in the car, like a car, and doesn't it have Bluetooth? Yeah, but then every time I do hook up my phone, it's I start flipping through and doing, like, weird illegal maneuvers. And I'm like, no, I can't. It's too distracting. Yeah, like, I just – it's, like, because I just use car share. Mm. So I don't have my own car. So okay. it's just an inconvenience. I'd rather just not bother. Because and I'm I, only going, like, 20 minutes. I'm thinking that, that those numbers will just jump to Spotify or something. So whatever's lost by CBC and Bell and Chorus will just go to Spotify or, or Apple Music or something. Yeah. It's 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 the way I mean they can ban it that's great and yay for them and good for their whatever reputation I mean I think if you're CBC you kind of have a different yeah. um, consideration than just because you're a public broadcaster you know and you have a mandate and we pay for your mandate I think to, it's also more you, of, you know. it's more about sending a statement like this is one of the few um, big contemporary Canadian bands. That, like, I feel like everyone was, like, it's almost like we gave these guys tacit approval and, like, so much exposure that it led to these situations happening. Hmm. Um, and, and let me that guess, is, they're a mediocre band. They oh, probably are. 100%. Should we play some Headley? <laughs> 100%. We'll play some after. Oh, no. Um, but, I mean, it, you know, I think there is that kind of feeling, like, we're, they're part of facilitating that. Like, if you're We Day, you definitely, and it's just, like, a youth-based event, you're definitely canceling Headley. Yeah. Why would you, yeah, like, yeah, allow yeah. the exposure? And I think other, same for radio. It's almost and like same you're for al- Junos. Yeah. Oh, the Junos. Oh, yeah. For sure. For, for sure. sure. And the radio kind of is like that. It's like, why are we allowing their fandom, like, allowing them to get to develop a fandom? Like, we've, fought, like we've kind of set up the stage for them, so to speak. Yeah. to get access to yeah. young people and to develop the celebrity, which probably is only because of, like, and not because it was merited necessarily either, just they got overplayed and here they are where they are. Yeah. Anyway, on that note. All right. You guys, become a patron of the podcast. So Patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. Uh, and we're on social media. Twitter, at bad and bitchy. Uh, Instagram, at bad and bitchy pod. Uh, on Facebook at Bad and B Podcast, and send us your questions for our Dear Bitches column. That's true. On our jazzy new website, we've already got like a few questions lined up. Like they're coming in. Yeah. It's oh really? It's good. It's really good. oh yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. And as always, uh, just a thanks to Media South for letting us use their space. People, don't be afraid to ask about race. I, I can do this for you. I'm just saying that. Just don't be afraid. 
that's my soothing little, you know. No, it's good. Uh, no question is inappropriate to ask. You should feel comfortable. To say well, there are inappropriate okay. questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. But, but no I question mean, is too dumb? I mean, there are also oh, yeah, dumb, there questions. Are dumb questions. Look, we'll yeah. screen them, right? But, like, just We're send it anyway. Yeah. Don't ask personal <laughs> questions about us. Oh, sure. That's a limit. That's a good one. Actually, yeah. that's a good one. Don't too. send dick. Fi- that's an invitation from dick. Fi- don't send I know. I know. Don't will it. Don't will it to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. So media style. <laughs> They're a progressive public affairs agency in Ottawa, making Canada a better place. And we record our podcast there. Thank you. All right. That's about it, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.